From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Today, the strange story of a wealthy businessman who fled China and found a home with Steve Bannon and Donald Trump's acolytes in the United States. In a new article, New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos reconstructs the curious journey of Guo Wenguei, who moved to New York, bought a huge yacht and a Fifth Avenue penthouse, and began a media platform with Bannon to propagate MAGA messaging and condemn China's Communist Party. Also, we'll hear from sports journalist Jamel Hill. When she was co-host of ESPN Sports Center, she ignited a controversy by calling Donald Trump a white supremacist in a tweet. She's now a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and she has a new memoir. And Maureen Corrigan will review The Year of the Puppy, the new book from Alexandra Horowitz, author of the bestseller Inside of a Dog. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. In June of 2020, conservative broadcaster and Donald Trump acolyte Steve Bannon stood on a boat in New York Harbor with a wealthy Chinese businessman for an unusual live-streamed news conference. Bannon and Guo Wenguei announced the formation of an alternative government for the people of China called the New Federal State of China. The news conference ended with Guo enthusiastically chanting a slogan condemning the Chinese Communist Party and planting a kiss on Bannon's cheek. Bannon's embrace of the project was likely fueled by Guo Wenguei's generous financial backing of Bannon and Trump supporters' efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Our guest, New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos, has a new article about the curious journey of this business tycoon who fled China in 2015 after a mutually beneficial relationship with a Chinese intelligence official got him into trouble. Osnos's article examines Guo's strange career, how he made his way into Trump's inner circle, and what it says about American politics in the Trump era and our changing relationship with China. Evan Osnos has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2008. He spent eight years reporting in China and is the author of the book Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. Osnos's new article in The New Yorker is titled How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. Evan Osnos, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be with you. Uh, This is such an odd story, uh, and it gets really interesting when this character, Guo Wenguei, gets mixed up with the Trump folks. But let's begin with his origins in China. Um, Humble background, right? Where where did he grow up? That's right. He grew up in a village called Ying out in a rural stretch of Shandong province. It's a farming area, and he was one of eight children without much of anything. And he, he was born really with the gift of gab, as it's known in Chinese. He had a long, tireless tongue, but he didn't have a whole lot else. Uh, he dropped out of school at the age of 13, and he started selling things like clothes and electronics. And, and a teacher who was interviewed by Chinese reporters later remembered him as having been, as she put it, less often in class than he was out of it. She said he ran with a group that was fighting and gambling and chasing girls. And uh, before long, he ended up in jail. Right. He was jailed in 1989, um, which was the year of the Tiananmen Square massacre, I think, right? Um, is, it clear, mm-hmm. is it clear why he was jailed? Well, he tells a story that is a, a heroic narrative in which he says that he was inspired by the students at Tiananmen Square, far away in Beijing, and that he sold his motorcycle and sent them money, and that for that he was arrested. And... 
and but the verdict in his case doesn't mention any political activism. It, it, it describes the offenses as having been a local oil scheme, basically bilking local oil buyers out of out of a few thousand dollars. And Agua has said that those charges have been falsified. But that really was a turning point in his life. He's, he's quite clear about that as he says that the people that he met in jail were some of the people that launched the whole world that eventually opened up to him. Right. And I guess we should note, when we talk about what Gua says, that's not to you directly, right? He never granted you an Correct. interview, right? But 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 he's left a long trail of, of, of documentation and other material, right? That's right. Yeah. He, he declined to talk to us for this article. He has made a lot of statements and videos and uh, and, and and legal pronouncements over the years, and, and they uh, they tell his story as he sees it. So he gets involved in business and works uh, for a wealthy woman uh, a, a, who had a company, got involved in construction projects, and then um, gets involved in the, you know, the intersection of private entrepreneurs and government officials. Um, what, he became what's called a white glove. Explain this. Yeah, this is an interesting feature of Chinese life over the last generation. And there is a a realm of people in China who have built close relationships with government officials. They help them do business. It's it's become known as being a white glove because you help the officials keep their hands clean. And what it means in effect is that you figure out ways that can help them profit or help them get an investment in a lucrative deal. All of this is done behind closed doors. And there was a a white glove named Desmond Shum who eventually fled China. And he later described his experience as having been like one of the tiny fish that cleans the teeth of a crocodile. (laughs) And it was a very risky way to live, but also very lucrative. If you got in with the right people, you could end up making a fortune. I should say, you know, it's not clear if Guo would accept or deny the characterization of a of being a white glove, but it's it's the realm of of uh, Chinese business uh, and government that was a, a, a key piece of how of how many people made their fortunes at that time. So, doing this work, I guess. You know, it involves gifts and flattery, courting of the connected. And he eventually got to Beijing where, you know, the the numbers were bigger, the stakes were bigger, the officials were more important. There's a story you tell of um, him giving a sports car to somebody. What what happened here? (laughs) Yeah, Guat denies bribing officials in the government. And it's also the case that he became – uh, gained a reputation for a form of generosity. Uh, there was a, a story, it said that a, a government regulator walked out of his house and, and found a sports car in front of it with uh, the glove box containing a gift card with hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. And there was a, a way in which others who who met Guo in this period really were struck by how visibly ostentatious he was about his wealth, which in the Chinese political culture is a signal to people that you have backing because the only way that you acquire that kind of money and the only way you can be generous 
is because you have people who will protect you. And so he would bring people to his house and very often treat them to these dramatic extravagant dinners and then take them down and show them a garage full of Maseratis and Lamborghinis and Ferraris. And it was it was a, the kind of lifestyle that was, in Chinese political terms, a clear sign that he had powerful people supporting him. To have Lamborghinis sounds to me like the kind of income that would go beyond being somebody's fixer. Was he was he an entrepreneur in his own right? Did he own companies? Certainly, yeah. He was building buildings in the capital. He was um, he, he was somebody who thrived within this very Chinese realm of the intersection between government power and the surging free market because the two sides needed each other after all. I mean the, the, the people in government wanted to show in order to earn pro- their promotions in their own system, they wanted to show that, that buildings were being built, that roads were going in, that railways were going in. And of course, the entrepreneurs wanted the access to coveted pieces of land. They needed permits. They needed all the kinds of things that you needed in order to build. And so there was this mutual benefit that grew up around China's go-go years in which entrepreneurs and government officials all benefited mightily. So there are stories of uh, Guo Wenguei being generous and with gifts. There were also stories of him playing rough if somebody didn't give him what he wanted, right? Yeah, very rough. In, in one particular case, which he has talked about, there was a piece of land that he needed right near the Olympic stadiums in Beijing, which was a very important, very lucrative piece of property because he wanted to build a high rise there. And there was a vice mayor of Beijing who was standing in the way of that permit named Liu Zhihua. And Guo has talked about working with government agencies to get a surveillance tape of Liu in bed with his mistress. That tape was then – he gave it to anti-corruption authorities. Liu was arrested and eventually given a suspended death sentence and Guo got his permit back. And and he's – He's acknowledged that kind of dealing uh, because it was, in his mind, a rough and tumble place and, and he was going to figure out a way to thrive in it. Right. So in this world, um, you know, he would use whatever leverage he can get and it appears that there was a relationship with a high-ranking intelligence official that provided him leverage, right? That's right. He has talked about the fact that he became very close to a man named Ma Jian, who was the head of Chinese counterintelligence inside the Ministry of State Security, which is an immensely powerful position. This is the guy who's not only in charge of finding foreign spies on Chinese soil, but also in charge of ferreting out who among his colleagues and comrades might be a traitor, might be cooperating with a foreign intelligence agency. And at, at first, when this began to become public, Guo said, well, you know, Ma and I were just we had a working relationship. Uh, we we had a shared interest in architecture, he said. But then later, actually, after a couple of years, Guo became more explicit. And, and he said, no, you know, we had – he said I was, as Guo put it, an affiliate of the Ministry of State Security. And, and they had this long-running relationship uh, in which they did business together and uh, according to Chinese reports – Ma Jian would use his political power in order to blunt investigations and push away competitors and scrutiny that allowed Guo's business to thrive. So this businessman kind of has 
his ear on the inside of the inside of the Chinese power structure. He has dinner with Henry Kissinger. He traveled to North Korea at one point, a, a remarkably connected man. Yeah, he even went overseas on behalf of the Ministry of State Security to meet with the Dalai Lama. I mean, this is the person, of course, who the Chinese government regards as a as a separatist. There, there are very few and very carefully calculated contacts between the government and the Dalai Lama. And they, in effect, they tasked Guo Wengui to go out and act as what intelligence experts call a cutout, meaning a civilian who operates on behalf of the government, drawing less scrutiny, but can go and convey messages back and forth. And uh, the, the Dalai Lama's office has said that they, they had no idea that he was acting in that capacity. Um, and uh, But he did indeed have these, have these meetings. Gua has said that the government actually offered him rewards for his, um, his service in that capacity, and he, he turned the, the awards down. Evan Osnos is a staff writer for The New Yorker. His new article is How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. And Maureen Corrigan will review Year of the Puppy, the latest book by canine psychologist Alexandra Horowitz. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. We're speaking with New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos. He has a new article about a wealthy businessman who fled China in 2015 and became a backer of Steve Bannon and the movement to overturn the results of the 2020 election. His article is titled, How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. He makes his way into the MAGA world, um, and I, I love this one sentence you have here. The politics of Beijing had prepared Guo well for navigating Trump's Washington, another realm where money bought influence, business mixed with government, and the truth merged with fiction. <laughs> um, he, he meets Bannon through a, another a contact, and um, – in 2017, you write, when he kind of connects with them, Bannon needed some new allies too, as, as what did. Explain why. Bannon at that point had just left the White House and he'd had a, uh, a dispute with Donald Trump. They eventually made up, of course. But he was looking for his next act and he was thinking about starting a media company. And his former backers, the Mercer family, uh, had very publicly said they weren't going to be backing Steve Bannon anymore. So he needed new funding. And and there was this kind of mutual meeting of the minds. I mean, Bannon actually was aware of Guo Wengui all the way back in his Beijing days. He'd heard about this guy, this kind of flamboyant real estate developer. And Bannon had actually said, he seems like the Donald Trump of Beijing. And so when he when he left the White House, a mutual friend introduced them and they had this long six-hour dinner by Bannon's recollection at the Hay Adams Hotel in Washington in which they began to dream up these ideas for collaboration. And one of them was that they eventually started a media network together called GTV, which would be a kind of alternative platform for video and news and so on. And, and it would fill a space that had been left behind because Twitter and Facebook in the years since 2016 had stopped allowing as much what they described as election disinformation onto their platforms. And so this new network was a way for Bannon 
and Guo to start getting more of the pro-Trump messages out there that they wanted to. And I should say, according to a contract that was later released, Bannon was paid a million dollars for a year of consulting with Guo's new company. You mentioned that he that Bannon knew of Guo from his China days, his days in Beijing. What 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 were those? What was Bannon doing there? Well, Bannon had this. Uh, interest in China that went back a long way. He'd been a naval officer early in his life and had been in the South China Sea, had later worked, of course, at Goldman Sachs as a banker, and then had had actually uh, run a gaming company that had offices in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And so he developed a whole theory of China as this existential threat to the United States. And he was determined to try to make opposition to the Chinese Communist Party a central plank of his form of conservative politics. And so one of the things that was happening as he was coming out of the White House was that he was looking for the financing and the right kind of language, the right figurehead, the right person who would advance this way of making a more belligerent approach to China a central plank of Republican politics. And that brought these two together. Right. And that certainly influenced Donald Trump's or synced well with Donald Trump's approach to China. Um, You know, I mentioned in the introduction this news conference in New York Harbor, um, Steve Bannon and Guo Wenguei on a boat. Um, Tell us about this. (laughs) It's quite, quite a remarkable moment. It is. It's kind of a surreal scene. You know, these two figures who are just very different visually. I mean, Guo is a very um, carefully attired, kind of trim cut, wearing Brioni suits. And and Bannon, as as many Americans would recognize, is a kind of um, more um, informal figure. And the two of them sitting side by side on this little boat in front of the Statue of Liberty had engineered a scene that was designed to communicate this new partnership. These two ideas, the, the, the sort of pro-Trump movement against, as Bannon would put it, elites and against the Chinese government, and then Guo Wenguei's movement against the Chinese Communist Party. And there's this moment when Guo is chanting in Chinese, take down the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and then Bannon joins him in it. But it's it's you see on their faces, it's this kind of union of calculated interests, these two people who have found themselves together, not quite naturally, but uh, productively. And that really was the beginning. They, they formed what they described as a, a government in exile uh, that was mostly online, but it was a symbol of how they were setting themselves out to try to uh, build out a movement around themselves. So there's this chanting in Mandarin, and then it finishes in English, and then Gua plants a kiss on Bannon's cheek and says, love right. you, right? Um, right. Yeah, and Bannon says, uh, thank you. And, and and then he asks if the video is still on. There's a, And then at one point, Guo signs a declaration of principles in his own blood, and Bannon skipped that part. But there's a way in which these two figures were beginning to form a new kind of power center that could attract other former Trump officials and aides and campaign supporters, and that would merge these ideas of uh, of opposing the 2020 election result, of opposing the vaccine, all of these things were finding a home, not on Twitter and Facebook, but actually on Guo Wenguei's network, his media network. And 
Guo's network started to dub Bannon's podcast into Mandarin and play it on there. And so it, kind of in this way that you never might have imagined or expected, Bannon was was finding this avenue of amplification through this Chinese businessman who had previously acknowledged a long relationship with Chinese intelligence. You know, I just have to ask, when, when Guo signs this Declaration of Principles in his own blood, did he happen to bring a vial or did he cut himself there? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, he, he, he did it right there at the scene. I mean, that is uh, – Guo is, a, is very conscious of stage management and of creating these visuals – so what do we make of this guy? I mean, he flees China, hates the Chinese government, asks for their forgiveness, and you know, persecutes Chinese dissidents. How do you understand him? I have to tell you, Dave. I you know I've written a lot of stories over the years, and and some are more confounding than others. This one I find completely fascinating and bewildering. It reminds me of a of a term that has floated around the American intelligence community for many years. The, the chief of U.S. counterintelligence in the 50s and 60s was a man named James Angleton, who used to describe his work as what he called a wilderness of mirrors, in which you could never really know who was true and who was not, who was declaring themselves a defector, and who was in fact still working for the government they left behind. And who was seeking, as he put it, to confuse the West. And I, I think that there is a degree to which it becomes very hard to know what Guo Wengui's ultimate goals are, his project in this country. Um, but it's gotten to the point now where it's visible enough and he has built enough relationships with people in Trump's orbit that we can begin to describe it on paper using many of his own words and uh, and the trail that he has left behind. Well, you know, it, it occurred to me when, when you look at him, you look at this swashbuckling business career, he makes a ton of money, but he also gets sued a lot. He gets into trouble with regulators. He files for bankruptcy, has all these nasty fights with his political rivals. Kind of reminds you of Donald Trump, doesn't it? Yeah, and and not just us. I mean, Steve Bannon at one point said he, he Guo Wengui really does seem like the Donald Trump of Beijing, and it's kind of interesting that Guo when he when he came to the United States, one of the first things that he had done was join Mar-a-Lago, Trump's club in Florida. It was almost as if he was perfectly suited to harvest this moment in American political and public life, and found people who in the Trump world wanted to benefit from him and wanted to help him succeed. Hmm. So you, so you think the MAGA movement was fertile ground for for somebody like this? Yeah. Look, I, I there are people Dave who have watched Guo's case, people in the US national security community who say that looking at the pattern of disruption that he has generated in this country since coming here, it appears that he is still operating on behalf, according to this view, of some portion of the Chinese power structure, whether it's opponents of Xi Jinping who have fallen out or people who are trying to generate chaos in America's politics because they think ultimately it would be for China's benefit. That is a view. And at one point a couple of years ago when Guo was in a lawsuit, the company that, that – uh, 
that he was suing accused him of being, as they put it, a dissident hunter, a propagandist, and an agent in service of the People's Republic of China. Guo denied that accusation, but the judge in that case, in a federal court, concluded that it wasn't clear, ultimately, as the judge put it, it wasn't clear whether Guo is in fact a dissident or a double agent. The judge wrote, others will have to determine who the true Guo is. Evan Osnos, thanks so much for speaking with us again. My pleasure. Thanks, Dave. Evan Osnos is a staff writer for The New Yorker. His new article is How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. Alexandra Horowitz is a professor of psychology and founder of the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard College. In 2009, she wrote Inside of a Dog, which became a bestseller. Horowitz's new book is called The Year of the Puppy, and our book critic Maureen Corrigan says it offers readers plenty to chew on. Lucky puppy, lucky puppy, such a lucky puppy to be adopted by Alexandra Horowitz. What Mr. Rogers was to children, Alexandra Horowitz is to dogs, a wise and patient observer who seeks to intimately know a creature who is fundamentally different from us adult humans. Horowitz is a canine psychologist, an authority on how dogs perceive the world. But as she generously admits in her latest book, The Year of the Puppy, there's plenty she doesn't know. So out of professional curiosity and a perverse desire to add a tiny peeing, pooping, biting, barking, yodeling furball to her family, which then already consisted of husband, young son, two mature dogs, and one cat, Horowitz decides to adopt a puppy. And during the months that follow, she confesses to having regrets. Speaking as the owner of a beloved but unexpectedly big rescue mutt with reactivity issues, I wouldn't trust Horowitz if she didn't have regrets. As anyone familiar with Horowitz's previous books knows, The Year of the Puppy is not a training manual. Indeed, one of the best moments in this book occurs towards the end, where Horowitz, mimicking the notorious certitude of the Cesar Milan School of Trainers, offers a list called, What You Need to Be Prepared for Your Puppy. Here's the list in its entirety. One, expect that your puppy will not be who you think, nor act as you hope. That profound statement, applicable to all sensate creatures, speaks to Horowitz's insistence on seeing the otherness of dogs clearly. But whether purchased from a breeder or rescued from a shelter, most dogs go home with their humans when they're weeks, months, even years old. Horowitz wanted to study how a puppy starts to make meaning of the world, fresh out of the womb, how they start to become themselves. To do so, she connects with a woman who fosters dogs at her home. There, a rescued dog of indeterminate breed soon gives birth to a whopping 11-puppy litter. 
Weekly, Horowitz returns to scrutinize the puppies, swiftly changing from furry lima beans to sweet potatoes with ears, feet, and a tail to chunky bunnies. At eight weeks, Horowitz and her family take home one of the puppies, a female with black, gold, and white fur with standing tufts of hair on her nose, a no-hawk. They name the new pup Quiddity, which means the essence of a thing, and call her Quid for short. Then the fun begins. Horowitz's writing is as simultaneously buoyant and precise as Quid's zest for catching tennis balls over and over and over again. Her chapters, packed with close observations about canine cognition and behavior, are mini mood lifters. How can you not smile when reading this description of the litter at five weeks? The whole lot exits, then enters, then exits the doggy door. They are functioning as a gentle scrum. They seem bound together by invisible threads, not yet in the world, as much as they, together, are their own world. And so, when one tumbles into sleep, suddenly nearly all the pups follow, as though a sleeping sickness has swept the pen. Within a minute, nearly all are head to tail to tail, in a circle on a soft bed, asleep. If the first third of the year of the puppy consists of Horowitz's scrutiny of the litter, the remainder of the book is focused squarely on quid. She is a light bulb burning bright, says Horowitz about Quid's first weeks at home. When she is on, you can't not notice her. She is chewing, running, peeing, scratching, whining, doing. We didn't just adopt a dog. We took on her education into everything human. Predictably, Quid soon sheds her identity as Horowitz's research subject and fully morphs into Quid, the flawed but beloved family dog. Even Horowitz, the dog expert, recognizes that she's as much trained by Quid as Quid is trained by her. Gertrude Stein once said, I am I because my little dog knows me. As with most things, Stein said, the meaning is fluid. But the year of the puppy elaborates upon Stein's remark. Between the humanness of the human and the dogness of the dog lies a sublime mystery. Many of us call it love. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of English at Georgetown University. She reviewed The Year of the Puppy by Alexandra Horowitz. Coming up, sports journalist Jamel Hill She'll reflect on her childhood and her career, including the controversy she ignited by calling Donald Trump a white supremacist in a tweet. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Sports host and commentator Jamel Hill was catapulted into a political firestorm in September of 2017 when she wrote a series of tweets that included the words, Donald Trump is a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. Hill, who at the time was a co-host for ESPN's Sports Center, went on to tweet that she thought Trump was a threat to democracy and unfit to be president. Critics attacked Hill for what they called ESPN's liberal bias, and Trump called for the sports network to fire her. But as Hill writes in her new memoir, Uphill, 
Long before those tweets, she was speaking her mind as a sports writer and columnist in ways that both galvanized and polarized her readers and the public. Jamel Hill is now a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and she sat down to talk about her new book with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. There's a childhood memory that Jamel Hill often comes back to. She's seven years old, in the backseat of her mother's car, on the way to see the movie E.T., when someone crashes into the side of their car. The impact propelled Jamel out of the back windshield and into the trunk, and for a few brief moments, Jamel believes she actually died. Growing up, she'd often ask herself, why did God bring me back to life? What was my purpose? One thing she knew, even at seven, is that she wanted to live the life her mother, father, and grandmother dreamed about, but were unable to. A life of travel, experiences, success. That desire set Jamil on a singular path as a sports journalist, for a time the only black woman to have a sports column in a newspaper, an anchor for ESPN, and the voice of opinion on some of the most divisive topics and cultural divides of our time. Jamel's journey began in the place where she was born, Detroit, Michigan, to a teen mother and a heroin-addicted father. Hill's escape from her circumstances came through writing and a deep desire to explore the world. Her memoir, Uphill, comes out this week. And before we get started, I wanted to let the audience know that Jamel and I come from the same place. We're two black women who grew up in Detroit at the same time, in the same neighborhoods, raised by single moms, and were part of a high school journalism program that had a huge impact on the trajectory of our lives. So you're definitely going to be hearing some familiarity in this conversation. Jamel Hill, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. I appreciate you having me and and good to reconnect with you. Yes. Well, let's start with your most infamous tweets. You've said those tweets about former President Donald Trump were probably the most unoriginal words you've ever written. And yet that series of tweets are a big part of what you're known for. Are you proud or resentful of that? Well, I'm not sure if either description fits. I mean, I guess I'm definitely not resentful of it in the sense that I don't regret doing it. And even with the negative backlash and the death threats and all those sort of things that came with it, I'm glad that I said what I said, but I hated that I had to say it and I hated it that it was true. Um, To imply that I was proud of it also would mean that my perspective on it is like, oh, I'm glad I was proven right. No, I, I wish everything that I said in that tweet were wrong, but unfortunately that has proven not to be the case. And Many of the things I expressed in those tweets about the former president have lingered. The words you use to describe yourself, unbothered, unbossed, it's the reputation that you've made for yourself. But after that tweet storm and that media frenzy around it, you really wanted your mother's support. And this memoir starts at that moment, a few months after the tweets. Your life had essentially been blown up and you had already decided that your future was not with ESPN. But your mom did not have the reaction you wanted or needed at the time. What did she say to you? I guess to give it some more context, my mother is is old school. And her perspective is that you should respect the office of the president, regardless of who's in it. And in fact, that was one of the first things she said to me. And I believe my response was, it's hard to respect an office when the person in it doesn't respect it. And so... um, you know, we had a little bit of a back and forth. 
She was very worried about my job security. But when you see yourself being discussed on every major network and people are um, making assumptions about who you are or why you said something and all these other things and you're just in the national conversation, you're looking for a little refuge and some solace and some consolation and some support. And this is not to say that my mother, you know, wasn't supportive. I mean, she was, but initially her reaction was not what I needed it to be. Most of this memoir is getting to know your mother and grandmother. Jamel, it's kind of as if you're saying, if you want to know who I am, you first have to understand who my mother and those who raised me are. Was that your intention when you first sat down to write? Yeah, it was always my intention to tell a multi-generational story because I felt as if the experiences of my mother and grandmother became so defining for me. And they were the two most influential women in my life when I was growing up. And so I felt like the most appropriate way to give people an indication or insight into who I was is to also tell their stories and to explain how their approach to life, how their disappointments, how their dreams, how their failures, how navigating those with them the impact that it had on who I eventually became. You learned a lot about your mother before she had you. She went through a lot. She started using heroin when she was 11 years old, in part because she didn't feel safe with her mother, your grandmother. She was molested by a relative at a very young age. And you would see her trauma play out throughout your childhood, as you mentioned. And at the same time, she was a good mother. She worked. She went to school. She raised you. She functioned in the world. When did you learn about the traumas that she experienced in her early years? Well, um, eh, I'm trying to pinpoint an age, but it was not something that she she hid. I mean, for a time she did because probably, you know, I wasn't age appropriate, but I definitely knew it by the time I got to to middle school. And part of the reason that I knew it is because of my mother being um, molested by her uncle from ages four through 11. My mother wanted to make sure early on that I understood my own bodily autonomy and that I also understood that the lines of communication were open with us and that if anybody made me feel uncomfortable, if anybody touched me in a certain way, she wanted me to know early on that I could tell her because she felt like that was something she did not get. And so I think part of the way the trauma came out, I mean, a mother is going to have a certain amount of protectiveness regardless. But with her, it was to the point where I think it was crippling almost because she was so in fear that the same thing that would happen to her would happen to me. You started to see your mother slip away. There was a very specific moment in time. You were actually 11. And up until you were 11, she was ingesting heroin, but then she started shooting it. Um, There's this passage on page 41, starting at, I was 11 years old. I was 11 years old when my mother began shooting heroin, the same age my mother was when she first tried the drug. My mother was in a deep depression. It had been a difficult five years, which included my mother's rape, the car accident that almost killed me, the divorce, our home being foreclosed, and living in that one-bedroom 
whole apartment on Joy Road. I could feel my mother slipping away, even though I didn't know exactly what was pulling her in such a dark direction. She was no longer snorting heroin like when she was younger. She was letting people inject her. Many of the men she was involved with during this time not only supported her drug habit, heroin or otherwise, but gave her money to pay bills and take care of our basic needs. I never went hungry and we never had the electricity or gas shut off. I knew we couldn't afford much, but I didn't need for anything. The worst part for me was watching my mother deteriorate. I was the one dealing with her mood swings and witness to her nodding out from time to time. She could be present and not there at the same time. She could be right in front of me and I would miss her. You know, I've been processing recently the impacts of the war on drugs and thinking about how we really are the drug war generation. I mean, we had a front row seat to it. And in many ways, myself included, I actually bought into vilifying the addicts around me and putting them into categories like high functioning versus those who were visibly strung out. Did you make that distinction as a child? And now knowing the totality of your mother's story, how do you see it now? I do see it differently, like now having a deeper understanding, a broader understanding, much like you just alluded to, of the concentrated efforts to villainize addicts. I mean, we, you know, the fact is, you know, we grew up in a time where the recourse and the corrective action was sending people who were crack users to jail. And for a very long time, you know, it's a very distinct difference, our response then to the drug epidemic versus the response now to the opioid crisis, completely different. And because drug use was so criminalized that you did uh, tend to see addicts that way and dehumanize them. I mean, that was a regular part of our culture. And even the way that we saw the drug trade, you know, in terms of drug dealers, because knowing now what we know about, you know, how drugs infected uh, inner city communities, you know, I have a much different, perspective on what was happening in my community that I didn't understand at that time. So I think the empathy that I have for both my mother and father, that was something that I had to grow into. And it happened just by asking them questions. And um, obviously, my my worldview expanding. But you know, as a kid, you, your selfish tendencies are, are pretty pronounced. And what you care about is your immediate world, what you get to do and what you don't get to do, as opposed to when you become an adult and you understand that the, the situation is so much more complicated. You and I were both part of the Detroit Free Press Apprenticeship Program. I was one year under you. And in your book, you name our mutual mentors, Rachel Jones, Louise Reed Ritchie, Greg Huskisson. And also in my year, um, there was Robin Gavon, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post fashion editor. Jamel, do you ever trip on the fact that they were actually younger than we are now when they were mentoring us? I know. Isn't it? That's wild. Uh, yeah, because like I think Rachel was in her early 30s, maybe <laughs> when she was mentoring me. And um, yeah, and, and that and it's just amazing how that program proved that you know, you, you plant seeds and man, you, you'd be surprised at how life-changing that could be. You know, there were a lot of people who are part of our program who may not have followed journalism, but they followed something. It put them on a path, a purpose, regardless of how that purpose 
you know, may have manifested itself. It didn't necessarily have to manifest itself in, in journalism. And Dr. Richie was a, a drill sergeant. I mean, she was on us all the time about our resumes and mm-hmm. getting clips and presenting well and knowing how to interview and, you know, all these things that young people definitely need to learn. But of course, when you're young, you just think she'd be in a pain in the ass. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> But the apprenticeship program in Detroit definitely changed the course of my life. Same. We were paid $10 an hour. We were able to have clips which, which was in the a newspaper lot and the magazine. Which was a I lot know, then. it was a big deal. Yeah, definitely. I mean, to, to, and to be able to be published. I still have my very first uh, piece that was published in the, in the free press because I, I, um, I got a piece published at the end of our apprenticeship and I, I still have it. <laughs> what was that first piece that you had printed? So it was a piece about, um, he may have been the only white student at my high school. I think he was the only one because I don't remember any other white people but him. But because he was, I mean, he was bullied and harassed a lot. And basically this column was about how um, seeing that and understanding the racial dynamic of why even despite historically what we all know has happened to black people and uh, even for what black Detroiters in particular were experiencing, you know, I just wrote about how kind of awful it was to see this kid get tormented every day. And mostly because he was white and he was the only white kid there in this massive school. And so, you know, I wrote about how like retaliation really can't be a part of the game plan because it felt like, he was being retaliated against for something that he had no control over and didn't even do. It's just, you're here, you're white, you're not like us. We just going to take out every possible frustration on you. And so that was my first piece in the Detroit Free Press Sunday magazine. You know, Jamil, the dogged determination that you have, it makes me think of a conversation I had with Me Too founder Tarana Burke around this time last year about her memoir, And she talked about how perfectionism and overachievement is often a trauma response. It's that John Henryism, that strategy for coping with prolonged exposure to stress by basically striving to be the best. But at some point, there's a cost. And that was a major breakthrough for me. What about for you? Yeah, I think Tarana's, she's absolutely right. Because as I was writing this memoir, um, I came across some information about how the children of addicts, how they respond to being raised to navigate addiction. And one of the trauma responses is um, control. And it was one of the things I learned in therapy that I did not know because I would have never put myself in this category is that I'm a control freak. And part of the reason why I put in the memoir that sentence about how um, a lot of people and a lot of things have let me down, but my career never has. It's because to me, my my career was, wasn't really a risk. It's I knew if I poured in X amount, an expected result was going to ha- was going to happen. And one of the things I loved about being in journalism was that I could control what was happening, not necessarily the stories I was being assigned or anything like that. But I knew after I did that apprenticeship program, okay, well, if I apply for internships, if I get clips, then that will lead me to the next internship. If I get enough internships when I'm in college, when I come out of college, I could maybe wind up 
at a mid-sized daily. Okay, if I cover general assignment sports for two years, then that'll put me in line to be a beat reporter. Okay, and then when I, once I'm a beat reporter, maybe I can try to be at Sports Illustrated. I had a whole plan in my mind because that was a source of comfort to me because I was able to control that. What I was really trying to go after was stability because I didn't feel stable as a child. And so the stability became very important to me as an adult. And so I've always put myself professionally in very stable situations, things that I could control. I mean, when we're talking about racism, we hear it all the time. I think there is very much so a philosophy that's very prevalent that we can achieve our way up out of racism. And that's just not the case. The entire idea that if we reach some level, some magical level of achievement, then we won't have to face racism anymore. And that's not the way it works. And so I very much buy into the fact that a lot of the energy I have poured into my career, a lot of it was just in response to the fact that I needed to feel safe in something. And my career was the best place to do that. Thank you for this memoir, Jamal. You're representing and illuminating a very specific experience, a black girl from the west side of Detroit. I mean, who else has told the world about the streets we inhabited and the humanity of our parents' experiences in this way? I just want to thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. This has been just such an enjoyable conversation and made even better by somebody who has very shared and relatable experience. Jamel Hill's new memoir is called Uphill. She spoke to Fresh Air guest contributor Tanya Mosley. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. (laughs) ¶¶